The Lord saved my life from, from years of heroin addiction and rebellion towards God. And I have the privilege now with uh, my, my wife and uh, two good friends who likewise were saved from addiction. Uh, we get to, to pastor a church. They're in Portland. Portland, Maine. And uh, we planted the, the church uh, almost two years ago in a time that uh, was, you know, probably not a great time to plant a church. It was, it was the opening months of the pandemic. And uh, we, we, by a step of faith and believing the Lord was leading and, and calling me and my family out of Calvary Chapel, Bangor, where I was comfortable and I was grateful for a job there. We took a step of faith, went down to Portland, two hours south, and planted a church. And we are seeing the Lord honor his word. We're seeing the Lord grow his church. Uh, it's been a remarkable thing. Uh, but it's a privilege to be here with you all. Um, Josh is a good friend and uh, clearly my public relations officer. And, uh, we, you know, we've just, we're, we, we've been convinced that if you convince the crowd that you're a charlatan, even though they may hold on to their wallets, they should at least give their attention to the message. And uh, so we're at least hoping that'll happen. Plus, we can't pick on Mike because Mike's from Philly and will go missing if <laughs> the joke goes wrong. So, um, hey, would you guys pray with me? Pray with me and we'll, and we'll dive into the word this morning. Lord, thank you for who you are. Father, thank you for your written word, the revelation from heaven. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in us, transforms us. Lord, it teaches us, and we pray today that would be what happens. Over these next few hours, into the evening and even to tomorrow morning, we pray that the fellowship with one another and the fellowship with you would strengthen us. We, we acknowledge that we live in a crazy time. Certainly, Lord, the latter days. And Lord, we know that there is a war on Christ, there's a war on manhood, or there's a war on the church, but Lord, we are strengthened to know what the word tells us, the end being written, the gates of hell will not prevail, and I pray you'd help us, even this morning, to hear from you, knowing, Lord, you are calling us out and into a deeper relationship with you. I pray you would speak through me now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Chris made mention. Of course, you guys know the theme of the conference. Let me read that verse again to you, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 11. It says, My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him. Your pastor, Zach, asked me in the middle of this conference, having the second session of the three, to really focus on the heart of that verse where it says, The Lord has chosen you. Now, you Bible students in the room, you guys agree with me. When we look at the four Gospels, we look at the ministry of the Son of God. We look at Jesus Christ with his disciples and the ministry he has with the multitudes, the thousands that would gather. You guys take note, in all four Gospels, the Son of God is always drawing people out of the multitude. In fact, there are certain times where he's sparing his disciples from the multitude. You remember John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Suspicious it would seem that the Son of God believed that now the multitudes were gathering for a free lunch. In fact, John tells us in John chapter 6 that the crowds were wanting to insert Christ as king, as if that was possible, right? But remember, he then commands his disciples to get in a boat and even sends them over towards a storm. It would be safer there than to be with the multitudes. The mob mentality. Guys, in 2020, we saw mob mentality, right? Our culture, mob mentality, where the beliefs and the doctrines of a small minority 
are now prevailing over the multitude of America. It's evil, no doubt. The Son of God is always calling people out, I believe likewise. Even this weekend, the Son of God is wanting to call individuals into a deeper relationship because God has chosen you. He's chosen me. He's given us a holy responsibility, and I believe the, the Lord led me to look at, maybe you'd call it a character study. We're going to look at five verses in Matthew 27. This is the focus of our study. A character study of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. It's unique to consider this man. You go almost the entirety of all four Gospels, it's not until the closing chapters that we're introduced to this man. But I believe it's so fitting, and as we look at this man and how the Lord works in his heart, that I believe likewise there's something in there for you and I. Matthew chapter 27, let's read the text together. It's beginning in verse 57. Read down with me, verse 57 to verse 61. This is what it says. It says, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. That's our text this morning. You take note with me those first few words in verse 57, right? Now, when evening had come, quite a day it's been, right? We know what day we're looking at. This is the day of Calvary, the day of the cross, the day that God interrupted the human timeline. The death of the Son of God. I mean, Josh gave us a wonderful illustration of how far God came down. And his ultimate purpose was to go there to a cross to pay for our sins. That evening is what we're looking at. Evening had come. Now, you know, of course, brethren, this is Passover week, right? This was all part of the sovereignty of God. It was the genius of God that 1,400 years before this, when the first Passover was instituted, remember, back in Egypt? In Exodus chapter 12, let me just read a portion of that first illustration that God gives Moses to give to the people. Let me just read it for you. Exodus 12, note takers. Every man shall take for himself a lamb. It'll be for his household. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Remember, Pilate would say, I find no fault in him. He says, your lamb shall be a firstborn. Moses told the people 1,400 years before this. The Bible tells us he was the firstborn over creation in Colossians chapter 1. And then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it, represented by the Sanhedrin, representing the congregation, killing the Lamb of God, and you shall kill it at twilight. Evening had come. The sun begins to set over the hills of Jerusalem as the Son of God surrenders his spirit unto the Father. John tells us this concerning these events. John chapter 19, it says, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the third, the thieves that were around him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately, it says, blood and water came out. For these things 
were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Can we just for a moment understand what a 24-hour period of time this has been when evening had come? I mean, just in a highlight, I mean, there's been the six trials of Christ, right? Beginning the night before, there was three Jewish trials, three Roman trials. There was Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin early in the morning. There was Pilate round number one. There was Herod. There was Pilate number two. There was six trials that have taken place less than a 15-hour period of time. There was the brutal beating and the scourging of the Son of God. The multitudes gathered, cheering in unison, crucify him, crucify him. Roman soldiers led him out of the city gates, remember, with a multitude who were following. They took him up onto a hill called Golgotha, Calvary. From 12 noon to 3 p.m., the sun went dark, remember? Luke tells us in all of the land, it wasn't like an eclipse, God turned the, the lights out in the middle of the day. John tells us the Son of God cries out, to tell us die, it is finished, and as if heaven itself were making a statement to earth, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, and then silence. Evening had come. Verse 54 of this chapter, it says, the centurion and those who were with him, they were guarding Jesus. They saw the earthquake. They saw the things that had happened. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. I mean, what a punctuation to a heavy day. What a punctuation from the religious leader's perspective to a thorn in their side, this preacher from Nazareth. Certainly, it was brutal to see what had happened, but to them, it was a relief, this was an end to this preacher and his ministry. Evening had come. Now, of course, these men really had no idea what was in store, did they? Three days later. But I say all that to say that then we're introduced to this man. Verse 57, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. I mean, seemingly Matthew just inserts this guy before us. What's unique is all four Gospels mention this guy. You guys know, right? There's the harmonies, specifically of the synoptic Gospels. John's Gospel is written much later. There's so much a different perspective. Focuses primarily on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. There, there are so many things that aren't uh, recorded for us in all four Gospels. But we get Joseph of Arimathea in all four Gospels. There's something in this for you and I, and notice it says he, Joseph of Arimathea, in verse 57, he himself had become a disciple of Jesus. That's a past tense, right? He had become. But now he's here before us. I believe we're clued into the why this rich man had remained hidden up until now. All four Gospels, as I made mention, give us a little bit more detail that leads up to what I believe is the crux of our message Today, so we know in Mark's gospel, note takers, chapter 15, verse 43. This is what Mark tells us about this man, Joseph of Arimathea. We get a little bit more information. Mark 15, verse 43. When evening had come, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, he went into Pilate, he asked for the body of Jesus. So we're getting a little bit more information there with what Mark tells us. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Look what Dr. Luke records for us. It says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member. He was a good and a just man. 
he had not consented to their decision and their deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. But it's John's gospel. It's John chapter 19, verse 38, that I believe is the, the most interesting detail we get of this man. John tells us this. After this, that would be the death of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Certainly, there are some things here for you and I. Now, it could be an exhaustive study. I'm just going to point out two of them, two things. Number one, concerning what the four gospel writers give to us, we know two of them mention it. He was a council member, right? A council member. This would be the highest authority within the nation of Israel. This was the governing body known as the Sanhedrin. The Greek word is actually synedrion. It means council. So Sanhedrin, Sanhedrion, it's one and the same. This was the governing politic of the day, right? In Jesus's day, the Sadducees had the majority, but there were Pharisees as well. 70-member council, the 71st member being the high priest. These guys, no doubt, were a powerful influence in the nation. And you guys know these were the people who were behind the plot to kill Christ. What's remarkable to me is that other than the high priest, which we get both Caiaphas and Annas, you guys know there was corruption, but other than those names, you know there's only three other men mentioned in the New Testament, maybe four, but three at least, Three other members of the Sanhedrin that are given to us by name in the New Testament, and all of them are either sympathetic or supportive of Jesus Christ in his ministry. I mean, one, Joseph Arimathea, right? It says he was a councilman. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So there's one. Guys, how about Nicodemus? Nicodemus, remember, he was a ruler and a teacher of the Jews. Flavius Josephus tells us in his writings that Nicodemus was probably in the top two or three most richest, influential men in all of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. He was a councilman. We know Nicodemus, of course, will be with Joseph of Arimathea around this time. He will take the body of Christ off the cross. Church history says Nicodemus became a man of the New Testament early church. And then you guys remember the third member mentioned of the Sanhedrin in the New Testament who was supportive of Jesus Christ was Gamaliel. Remember in Acts 5? Gamaliel, it says in Acts 5, verse 34, one in the council, in the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, one who was held in respect by the people. He rose up and he said of the apostles, keep away from these men, let them alone, lest you may find yourself fighting against God. So there's three for sure, members of this body, this body who ruled and voted to kill Christ, and yet three of these men that are mentioned to us by name are supportive of Christ. Like Joseph, he was a secret disciple. Luke says he didn't consent to the vote, but I wonder, did he contend against it? I made mention of the potential of a fourth member. We're well aware. There's great hints in the scripture of that man, Saul of Tarsus, right? Acts 26, verse 10, he says in his own testimony, I casted my votes against those he would throw in prison. There's great hints to believe that Saul of Tarsus was a member of the Sanhedrin. I don't need to prove to you guys that he was supportive 
of the ministry of Christ, right? So there's this unique thing given to us. The fact that he's a council member, one, I think there is encouragement of this man, Joseph of Arimathea, for you and I. And before we get into the other part of the study, let's at least give credit where credit's due. We know this man to be a good and a just man. Mark tells us he was an honorable councilman. I think there's a reality that even in a godless profession, a profession that would ultimately be diametrically opposed to Christ, he was able to have such a reputation. And certainly men in the room, right? There are many of us who are in some sort of profession. We're surrounded. Maybe we feel cornered by the world. We, we find that we are at odds. I don't know if your profession is public education or a city official or law enforcement. Maybe you're a business owner and you find that you are surrounded by enemy territory. But Joseph of Arimathea was, and he was a good and a just man. There's encouragement. I believe likewise, we should be good men in a bad world. That should be obvious. But I believe the greater part of Joseph's life that we should discover and look at this morning, the second thing, other than him being a council member, was he was, remember as John said, a secret disciple. You would agree with me, it's not a compliment when someone says, I never would have guessed you were a Christian, right? We don't want that said of us. It's a terrible thing to be said. It's almost as bad as being called a charlatan at a men's conference. Can you imagine? (laughs) Guys, he was a secret disciple, it told us in John 19, verse 38. You know the word there, secret, it's crypto in the Greek. He was a crypto disciple. It means to be hid, to escape notice, right? Guys, remember what Jesus taught his disciples? He taught the multitudes on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. It can't be hid. And this man, John tells us quite clearly, he was crypto. He was, you know, behind the scenes. Oswald Chambers said it this way. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. However, when you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I mean, think about the culture we're living in where fear is rampant. And it's being propagated and sold. Every media station you look at, and no doubt there's fear. It would appear that inwardly Joseph was devout in his faith. That's what the gospel writers tell us. He was honorable. He was just. He was good. It would seem outwardly he was quite discreet in his following. Not good. We're told in Dr. Lewis' gospel, I've already made mention, he did not consent to the death of Christ, but did he contend against it? You guys know, remember the uh, 18th century Irish philosopher Edmund Burke? He said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing, right? Well, remember how King Solomon said it, Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Here's a man that had become, past tense, a disciple. Now, we don't know for how long. I'm convinced Nicodemus played a, a part Earlier in Jesus' ministry, John chapter 3, right? Nicodemus came by night. No doubt, these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, they were uh, peers. They were um, men that no doubt had influence and affluence, but no doubt they were probably having their heart changed by the ministry of this man. For years, he was a disciple, it would seem. Sadly, I think this is important to consider, Sadly, throughout history of the church, for 2,000 years at least, we could go back into the Old Testament, but let's just look at the church age. In context of this man who was a disciple, but secretly, 
I believe you could summarize all of the church age into two, and then there's the true church. The, the state church, you know, it kisses the boots of the human government. We see that today and throughout history. But then there's the true church who has a higher constitution, a higher command. Now, if we were just to look at American history alone, just American history, and we considered like around the time of our revolution, I believe this is demonstrated, that statement I made to you about there's two churches. It's really well demonstrated to us by two brothers in the early colonial America. The brothers are Pastor John Peter Muhlenberg of Virginia and his brother who was Pastor Frederick Muhlenberg of New York. I can thank Bill Federer from American Minute. He's a great historian. I've learned much from Bill Federer. And talking about these two brethren, one of them, the pacifist within the two brothers, around the time of the tyranny from across the pond, one of them said England's tyranny was just a matter of misguided opinion, thought Frederick, and we as ministers must stay out of it. His brother, however, to the south, he saw things much differently. In fact, he believed he had a duty to resist tyranny. Now again, context, we're looking at Joseph of Arimathea. Because we're going to take note there that in Mark's gospel it says, but then, taking courage, he came out of the shadows. That's how Mark records it for us, right? All right, so now we're looking at the colonial America, two men. One of the brothers to the south, the man in Virginia, he believed there was a duty. In fact, on a Sunday morning, history tells us, on January 21st, 1776, Reverend John Peter Muhlenberg preached from the book of Ecclesiastes to his congregation. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. In the close of his message that morning, history says, he says this, in the language of the holy writ, there is a time for all things, a time to preach and a time to fight. And now is the time to fight. History says he then took off his clerical robe, revealing a continental officer's uniform, walked down the aisle and invited all men who would follow him. 300 that day joined what would be the 8th Regiment of George Washington's Virginia Regiment. His brother, to the north, saw things much differently. In a letter to his brother, you have become too involved in matters which, as a preacher, you have nothing whatsoever to do. I can translate that from colonial into modern day. Keep politics out of the pulpit, is what he said. Well, it's interesting what happened. Within a few months, the Red Coast landed in New York, where the pass of his brother was, and amongst many churches, his church was burned to the ground. He had what you'd call a change of heart. In fact, it was this gentleman who would eventually join the cause. Frederick was elected speaker of the Pennsylvania General Assembly. He would preside over the state's convention to ratify the U.S. Constitution. Now, his brother, who was already in the fight, he endured battles of Valley Forge in Yorktown. He was promoted to the rank of Major General. In 1789, he was elected representative to the first session of the U.S. Congress. There's two types. And it would seem to me that at, for a length of time, this man, Joseph Arimathea he, Arimathea, he stood in the shadows. He was a disciple. He was good and just, but he was hid. Why? For fear of the Jews. It's the fear of man that's a snare, the Bible says. Now, I'm going to stop here and say, obviously, I'm not calling us to arms. Is that that's obvious? You guys know that, right? I'm not calling us to arms. No, I'm saying God's always calling us out, even when it's against the culture, when it's against things that are... Um, maybe not popular. Okay, how about if we were to look in the 1930s and 1940s? 
what was happening in Germany. You know, the statistics tell us that in the 1930s, history recorded there were 40 million Christian evangelicals living in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. 40 million. Of course, they were part of what was known as the German Evangelical Church. They grounded their loyalty to the state. Uh, they had what was known as the doctrine of positive Christianity. You can look up shocking quotes from pastors in Germany in the 1930s. They would say stuff like, Christ has visited us in the likes of Adolf Hitler. Uh, shocking things that were happening. In fact, the doctrine of positive Christianity that was embraced by many of the Christians in Germany in the 1930s, we demand freedom of all religious confessions in as long as they don't jeopardize the German state. It's a dangerous place to be, right? But there was a minority, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, being one of the founders of the Confessing Church. And guys, when you consider Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we'll look at him at the end of our study, but what a life he had, and he had a life that was very much taking him away from taking a strong stand. He had the comforts of teaching in seminaries across the pond in America. But he had a sense of duty, I believe, as Joseph of Arimathea did, to come out of the shadows, to no longer be secret. Since Josh started it with calling names like Kenneth Copeland, let me just bring us to modern day times, mention a few other names. I believe today, likewise, we're looking at the same thing. Is the woke church, the progressive church at large in America? Certainly it is. Aligning themselves with the culture. Men like Reverend Rick Warren. Rick Warren recently said this. He said, God revealed a lot of his will when he gave you and I our brains. He expects you and I to use them. Get vaccinated, he said. Now listen, I tell my church this all the time. I'm not against vaccines. I'm against tyranny, coercion, intimidation. And it's a little sketchy when a shepherd gets in front of people and talk about taking something that's a bit sketchy. It's been proven. How about men like Tim Keller? I used to read the Gospel Coalition. But Tim Keller has come across also as taken aside with the state. He said on the Gospel Coalition, vaccines are a good gift from God and we must trust them in recent days. How about Lecrae, right? Big hip-hop artist. The rap music. You guys know Lecrae. He has sided himself with a pro-abortionist Senator Raphael Warnock, opening up for some of his ceremonies. In fact, Lecrae recently said this, what if Christians who want to reduce the number of abortions, instead they just supported the funding of women's health care, they dealt with systemic racism, and they addressed the income gap between white people and people of color. My point, brothers, this morning is there's two, there's two categories of disciples. And Joseph of Arimathea, he was in the shadows. He had fear of the Jews. He didn't consent. He was good. He was just. But he didn't want to make it known where he stood. But then something happens. We're introduced to it. Suddenly, and even seemingly for the first time, Joseph professes, Mark 15, verse 43, when evening had come, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, one who was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Suddenly the most dangerous time to now profess Christ, and he comes out and does it. I mean, the brutal execution of this man had just happened. The 11 disciples, we're going to find them later, they're, you know, shaking in an upper room. And this is the moment where this guy finally steps out publicly, goes to Pilate, and demands the body of Christ? Shouldn't we ask the question, what happened? 
What promoted this man? What called him out of the shadows? It would seem apparent to me it was the testimony of the cross that produced such courage. I believe Josh touched on it last night. It's the greatness of Christ and knowing who Christ is. That's what calls us to humility, what calls us to devotion, what calls us to duty, calls us to a responsibility. This man of Joseph of Arimathea, I believe, was a witness to all those events that happened that day and then evening had come. And something great happened. There was a minister named Walter Chantry, a Baptist minister. He'd gone home to be with the Lord now. Walter Chantry said it this way. As Christ struggled up Calvary's hill, his aim was to eradicate the love of self. And rather, he would implant the love of God into the hearts of men. One can only increase as the other decreases. Self-preservation is crucified on the hill of Calvary. I believe that man was confronted with that. This was a man who wasn't, you know, in the rags and the dregs of society. He was in the upper echelon, the affluence, the influence, the power, the religious circle. And yet he no longer could hide behind the fear of man, hide behind self-preservation, even when things were dangerous. He had to step out and no longer be hid. He was a prominent man, a religious man, one who had respect and reputation and riches. He was a man who had attained to a place of near noble status. But no doubt he was the witness of the brutality and the humility, the hostility, but the love of the cross. Oswald Chambers said this, terribly afraid of the cross, only earth seems to host beings who are able to ignore the cross. Joseph Arimathea couldn't ignore the cross that day. He was an eyewitness to it. He saw what had happened. I believe there was an invitation from the Son of God to follow him in a deeper, more bold, out loud, public way. And he gets drawn out. Notice what it says in verse 58 of Matthew 27. This man went to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. He rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. No doubt it was the affluence and influence of this man that gained access to Pilate. He would be able to go into the praetorium and, and make such a demand. But did you notice in verse 58, he asked for the body of Jesus. I'm reading from the New King James. Now the King James, if you have that in front of you, it says... He begged for the body. In fact, New King James in Mark's gospel, it says he craved for the body of Jesus. No doubt there was a devotion to this man. There was something that he no longer could contain. It was out loud. And listen, it's unique to consider where would, had Joseph of Arimathea not gone before Pilate and begged for the body, There was a place outside of the city gates. It was known as Gehenna. There's a much longer Aramaic name, but it was referred to as Gehenna. It would be like a trash pit. No doubt the two bodies of the thieves, when they would die, they'd go to Gehenna. Usually the jackals and the wild dogs would do the job, but if not, at the end of the Passover feast, you could go and ignite the, the pit on fire and take care of the body. And no doubt Joseph Arimathea couldn't bear the thought of his Lord He couldn't bear of what he had seen on Calvary's hill that day and the love that was demonstrated. And he says, there's got to be something greater. He begs for the body. And guys, how about this in verse 60? He laid it in his own tomb, 
which he had hewn out of stone. Obviously, this wouldn't be a cheap, it wouldn't be an easy endeavor. You know, you'd have to hire a crew by, you know, hammer and chisel to make not just one, but two chambers. That was the custom of a tomb. There would be the preparation chamber with a slab or a table. And then after that, you would take the bones, put it in the ossuary box, go into the uh, deeper chamber and put it on the shelf. But, you know, that's nothing remarkable for you and I because it's Joseph of Arimathea. He's rich. No big deal. He can do that. But it's the second thing I think we should consider that is a bit puzzling to me. Why is a man from Arimathea, 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, why is this man having a, a tomb hewn out in the stone? Now, you guys know the Old Testament, and you guys know this is a religious man. If you're from Arimathea, your dad was from Arimathea, your grandfather was from Arimathea, you know that you're going to be buried with your forefathers. I mean, Abraham set that for us in the cave of Machpelah. We know that the patriarchs knew that. Jacob and Joseph knew that when they were in Egypt. Don't leave my bones in Egypt, they said. Make sure you take us back to the cave of Machpelah. They knew you would be buried in the ossuaries with your forefathers. Why is a man from Arimathea building a tomb in Jerusalem? Isn't that unique to consider? You remember how Mark told us in Mark 15, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Are you following with me? There's only two times that phrase is used in the New Testament, waiting for the kingdom of God. Now it's implied, brothers, that we likewise are waiting for the kingdom of God. I know, I know you know that, but it's a unique phrase. Mark, by the Holy Spirit, tells us this man Joseph was waiting. We have to go way back in the early days of Jesus' life to see the other time that phrase is used. Remember the 40-day-old Christ? His parents bring him into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 2. Remember there was an old man named Simeon, remember? Can I read it for you in Luke chapter 2, verse 22? The only other time we get this phrase, waiting for the kingdom. In Luke chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Mary and Joseph brought the baby to Jerusalem, that's Christ, to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law. Every male who opens the womb shall be holy to the Lord. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon. Notice what it says about him. He was good and just and devout. That's what it said of Joseph, right? It says, and Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Could it be, brethren, that the Holy Spirit was likewise revealing something to Joseph of Arimathea, even if it wasn't completely clear? In other words, as irrational as it may have seemed, could this Joseph of Arimathea, could he have been, through his time on the council, investing in an empty tomb in Jerusalem? You think he was? Was he waiting for the kingdom of God? Was the Holy Spirit telling him to do something that maybe didn't make sense, as many in the world today say for you and I? We're still investing in an empty tomb in Jerusalem, are we not? An empty grave. The body is not there. Is there still a call for you and I, as there was of Joseph of Arimathea? 
stepping out of the shadows, investing our lives into this gospel story of Jesus Christ who died on a cross to pay for our sins, who took them far away as the east is from the west, the psalmist would say, who on the third day rose again and no longer was there. For 40 days appeared to the apostles and many others, was ascended up into heaven and then he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. Was this man Joseph of Arimathea by the Holy Spirit? Was he investing in an empty tomb? It would seem to me he was. You guys know how Paul says it. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. I believe there's a wonderful life demonstrated to us in the scripture here of a man who had every good reason to just keep his belief, his faith, the doctrine of Christianity to himself. But then he was confronted with the details of Calvary. That self-preservation must be crucified, that he would be called into a deeper and a more public and a more bold faith to step out into the shadows. The time had come for Arimathea, this man Joseph, to step out. I believe, guys, the world is not in need of any more secret disciples of Jesus Christ. Can we agree? The world doesn't need that. And all that's happening in the world right now, I believe God has been, and you would agree with me, God's sifting his church. For those who have stand on the truth of his word, not forsaking the assembling together, for preaching the whole counsel of God's word, for addressing difficult topic matters because the scriptures address those difficult topic matters and not bowing down to the you know, cancel culture of our culture, to not bowing down to the pressures to keep that quiet and don't you dare. This is the world we're living in. Do you guys think it's going to go away? Of course not, right? Do you guys still know people that say that? I can't wait till things go back to normal. You guys correct them, right? That's not going back to normal. How could it? Evil is prevailing, no doubt, to a degree. To a degree, but through the sovereign hands of God, he's in control. And he's calling, as he has through all of his ministry, he's calling people to come out of the multitude and into a discipleship relationship with him, isn't he? As unpopular as it may be. Remember in Matthew 16 when he took his, his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi? Remember, I mean, Caesarea Philippi, way north of Galilee. In Caesarea Philippi, I mean, there was the temple of Augustus Caesar there, the, the, the pagan god Pan, you know, the god of the underworld was there at the foothills of Mount Hermon. I mean, it was a sinful, sinful pagan culture. And that's where Jesus takes his disciples in the backdrop of all this evil and wickedness. He takes 12 men and says, all right, what are men saying about me? What are the latest Gallup polls? Well, some say you're like a, a prophet or some say you're like Elijah or John the Baptist. You know, it's easy when you can just say, well, that's good. What are people saying about you? But what are you saying about me, right? Well, you're the Christ. A little different, right? He's calling people into a more personal and a deeper relationship. All right, a few men, as we close here. Bonhoeffer, that man I made mention of. It's remarkable to study this man. I mean, he was a wealthy, aristocratic man. That was his upbringing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1930s, he had a comfortable career path of teaching Bible, right? I mean, guy wasn't a heathen. He was teaching Bible in American seminaries. It was all laid out before him. Hardly was Bonhoeffer heading towards a life of suffering, right? But there was a, a, a conviction to resist and to stand against tyranny, for his countrymen, for the gospel to go forth and to go back, leaving America into a dangerous culture. 
You guys know his story. It was the cross of Christ that compelled Dietrich Bonhoeffer to stand against the rising evil. And Hitler's Third Reich, you guys know he would eventually die in a concentration camp, 1945. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, being a Christian, it is less about trying to cautiously avoid sin. It is so much more about courageously and actively doing God's will. You guys ever done, done your Christian life on defense all the time? I can't go there. I can't look at this. I can't smoke that. I can't drink this. I can't watch this. I, gotta, I, I can't say this. I shouldn't hang out with that person. You guys ever spent your life like that? You're on the defense all the time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, that's not what Christianity is, man. It's actively and courageously and boldly stepping out and, and being the salt in the light, a city on a hill that can't be hid. I believe our culture more than ever needs that. Wouldn't you agree? Remember the theme, God has said, he's called us, that we shouldn't be negligent because he's chosen you and I to stand this far in human history, if in fact we are the generation that sees the rapture. You guys want to see that? I do. If we're that generation of nearly 6,000 years of human history, don't we want to make those who've gone before us proud? Don't we want to make Jesus Christ who's watching proud? Don't we want the Holy Spirit leaving in us to have its way in this culture and in our lives and in our families? Certainly. In closing, guys, let's be reminded it was that last verse, that 61st verse. Can we be reminded of a wonderful truth as we look at Christ on the cross coming off and being buried? Look at what's told to us. Verse 61, it says, Mary Magdalene was there. The other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. I mean, we consider the fact that Joseph Arimathea was there. Nicodemus, John says, he was there. I mean, these are wealthy men, prominent men, religious men. But at the same time, then we see you know, Mary Magdalene, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, socially speaking, right? You know, she had eight demons, Dr. Luke tells us. At one time, excuse me, she had seven demons, Luke chapter 8 tells us. I mean, penetrating every man-made bias of color and shape and size and race and riches and popularity and appearance, penetrating all of that is the cross. It's been rightfully said, level playing field. Wouldn't you agree? And we see that at who is there that day, in devotion, at the cross, whether prosperous or penniless, classy or common, desirable or destitute, prominent or a prostitute, just or a junkie, it doesn't matter. The cross levels the playing field. Isn't that a wonderful truth? And is calling us, come and die, that we might truly live. Be outspoken. Be loud. As the theme of the conference, my sons, don't be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him and that you would minister unto him. This is the last thing I'll say. A quote, you guys know the state of Alabama, Supreme Court Justice Judge Roy Moore. Remember that guy? Still alive today. This man, Justice Roy Moore, he was eventually penalized for not taking down the Ten Commandments in his courtroom. He's a man who stood for truth. He's since been involved in politics this man, he wrote a poem. I thought it was profound. I thought it would be a good way to end the, the session today. Justice Roy Moore from Alabama, he said it this way. He goes, America the beautiful, or so you used to be, land of the pilgrim's pride, I'm glad they'll never see. Babies piled in dumpsters, abortion on demand. Oh, sweet land of liberty, your house is on the sand. Our children wander aimlessly. They're poisoned by cocaine, choosing to indulge their lust when God has said, abstain. 
From sea to shining sea, our nation turns away from the teaching of God's love and a need to always pray. We've kept God in our temples, and how callous we have been at the core when earth is but his footstool and heaven is his throne. We voted in a government that's rotting at the core, appointing godless judges who throw reason out the door, too soft to place a killer in a well-deserved tomb, but brave enough to kill a baby before he leaves the womb. You think that God's not angry, our land's a moral slum? How much longer will he wait before his judgment comes? How are we to face our God from whom we cannot hide? What then is left for us to do but stem this evil tide? If we who are his children will humbly turn and pray, seek his holy face, and mend our evil way, God will hear from heaven, forgive us of our sins. He'll heal our sickly land and those who live within. But America, the beautiful, if you don't, then you will see a sad but holy God withdraw his mighty hand from thee. Not true. Erwin Lutzer said, it's not how loud we can shout, but how well we can suffer that'll convince the world of the integrity of our message. I don't know what's ahead of us like any one in the room, right? It would seem persecution is coming to a theater near all of us in some degree. I truly believe that. I believe God needs outspoken, bold disciples, especially men, more than ever. I believe Joseph Arimathea was compelled by the cross to step out. May we respond in the same way? Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look at it, to see the scripture, and to study a man like Joseph of Arimathea. Prominent man, just, good, a man who had comfortability and a position. Lord, we acknowledge it was the cross of Jesus Christ, the love demonstrated in a supernatural way, hard to fully wrap our minds around. It was that love that compelled him to step out of the shadows. We acknowledge, Lord, even within our nation and around the world, there seems to be a divide, a rift within the church, Lord. While we certainly want unity, we also acknowledge that there are imposters. There are those who bow their knee to a different constitution. There are those who seemingly have compromised. Lord, I pray that would not be us. That, Lord, we answer to the truth of your word. We are led by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we would take a stand by the Holy Spirit leaving in us to tyranny. Lord, that we would be bold about our faith. We'd be quick to share the truth of God's word. Lord, I pray we'd be raising disciples in our households. As men, Lord, I pray you'd help us to be those men who are compelled by the cross. We are compelled by the love of God. Lord, we're compelled by the incarnation, how far you came down. That that would be the motivation that we would live our lives out loud for you. I pray for the next session, Lord. I pray as Pastor Mike shares. I pray for our fellowship this weekend. Lord, I pray you would continue to be strengthening our inner man. Lord, help us to be bright lights in a dark world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace to you, gentlemen.